Are you ready to bring your real estate game to the next level? My name is James Prendamano. I'm the CEO and founder of Pre-Real. And over the past 25 years, I've closed over a billion dollars in transactional real estate. Each week, I'm meeting with outstanding investors, high-performing individuals, and visionaries operating in the real estate space. These are the people that are actually out there in the real estate game right now getting it done. This podcast aims at bringing anyone's game to the next level. This is the Pre-Real Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to the Pre-Real Podcast. So we're super, super, super excited uh, for today's guest. We're joined by Sunitha Rao. Uh, she's the founder of Griffith's Property Group and has an amazing story, amazing background, and is transitioning. And we'll get to this, folks, uh, as we do a little later in the show. She's transitioning into uh, per, the pursuit of financial freedom um, in, in a manner that is has given me fits over the years, which is long-distance investing. But uh, Sonny, thank you so, so much for joining us today. Thanks for taking the time and, and sharing with us. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to speak with you. Yeah, so uh, we wanted to have you on the show for a number of reasons, um, but certainly your your path uh, of how you, you landed where you did and, and specifically why, um, I think finding your why um, and, and financial literacy and financial freedom are things that elude many of us, even those of us that have gotten to a point of awareness where we, we know we want to find it and we're seeking it, uh, but it eludes us for one reason or another. Uh, if you could give us uh, some of the background, starting back, you know, six years old, tennis, becoming a pro, just, just missing being a top 100 player in the world, amazing story. I think it, it would provide some great context for the audience to understand your journey. Uh, so if you could spend a few minutes on that background, I think it'd be super productive. Absolutely. I'd love to. Thank you. Um, so yeah, I my background is a little bit different from many. Um, I spent 10 years playing tennis professionally. Um, I turned pro at the age of 14, retired at the age of 23. Um, and my life up through the age of 23 was solely dedicated to my sport. Um, it was incredibly um, just eye-opening. I got to travel the world. I got to play on like sold out stages. It was just, it, it, there's so many experiences that many would never be able to have, which is I'm incredibly grateful for. But by the same token, it was equally as hard. The lows were just as low as the highs were high, you know? And um, one of the things, one of the many things that I took away from the sport was um, my, my fear of being broke again. So playing a professional sport, it sounds really glamorous. You're traveling every week, et cetera, et cetera. People think you're just making bukus of money, buckets of cash. You're going to retire in, in Monaco. And, you know, that was definitely my plan. It didn't work out quite as I had anticipated um, because the one thing that I failed to, and those around me failed to kind of anticipate was how expensive it would be. So if you think about how you save each year to go on vacation, maybe for like a weekend or a week with your family, how expensive that is, how much of a bite that takes out of your budget. Think about what it costs to live that life 30 weeks a year, 40 weeks a year, because that's how many tournaments a week, a year that we are traveling each week at a different destination. So that is a hotel room, eating out every meal, et cetera. The money doesn't stay in your pocket unless you are at the very, very top of your sport. And I was very, very close, <laughs> but I didn't quite get there. So, so uh, before we move past that, I, I just want to talk <laughs> about it because that really jumped out at me as I was doing my homework, uh, being the top 100, or, or I think it was 103 uh, or, or 108 at, at your highest point, And that was in 2008. You would think being in the top 100 of anything in the world, never mind something as, as uh, well-known and competitive as tennis, uh, I too thought that there would have been this glamorous lifestyle that was connected to that. And, and, and I guess, it, is it because um, of restrictions within the industry itself, or is it solely, unless you're in that top, you know, 10th of a percent, the tournament money doesn't flow the way you would anticipate or endorsements. Yes. 
It's both. So when you look at the earnings of the top athletes, prize money is just a drop in the bucket. The majority of their that lifestyle is actually funded by endorsements. Those are for those who sell significant tickets, you know, so they have a lot of visibility. People know about them. And also the way that the, the air quotations business model of the sport, there is a lot, a lot of money being poured into a certain group of players, but you have to be at the very top. So like you can be even inside, just inside the top hundred, still barely be breaking even. However, if you're maybe top 50, then you're starting to, I haven't looked at that. I'm just quoting this. I haven't looked at the prize money in 10 years. I retired in 2009. So things might've changed a little bit, but there's still this uh, like very diverse kind. There's almost like a gulf in between the haves and the have nots. And even the have nots are the best at what they do. I mean, if I was 108 in the world in real estate, can you even imagine how much money I'd be making? Or just even the team, if I decided to play a team sport, um, that was more loop in terms of brand endorsement, had more TV time exposure. My life would have been very different. However, with it being an individual sport, one that is less marketable, is less able to sell um, as initial ad spots on TV, that sort of thing. Um, all of that makes a pretty big difference in how much money the players walk home with. That, 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 that was remarkable to me. Um... And, and I guess it's 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 perception, you know, versus reality, as is often the case um, until you've you've walked a mile in someone's shoes. You really don't understand what's ha happening on the other side. Um, so you, you're you raised to your career literally to levels that most can only dream about. Sonny was tennis, uh, something special to you at the earliest of ages. How did you how did you fall you know, how did you follow this path and, and where did I would assume there had to be an exceedingly high level of passion, the, the commitment uh, I can't even begin to fathom? Yeah, so it was something that it was a decision that was made for me. I'm not going to lie. Um, a decision that was made for me. My father wanted a professional athlete because he wanted to be one and couldn't. So that kind of and that's not um, that's not an uncommon story. You know, um, so I was kind of put in the sport. Thankfully, I had an aptitude for it um, and I was able to pursue it as it was more like a need and an obsession versus a love, because to this day, like I don't I don't miss it. <laughs> but at the time, I couldn't envision life without it. <laughs> It sounds a little bit like an abusive relationship, you know, um, I grew up also, I say that lightly, but I don't make light of those um, situations just for full disclosure, because I grew up in a, in a violent home. So that's kind of also why I can say that, you know, at the time it was, it's, it was very difficult, but kind of once you break out for me, once I broke out of it, it was, it was a much easier and better life. Um, and yeah, the kind of commitment that requires is really unfathomable. It's, it's like being on a diet every day of your life from the time you're a child. Um, and everything, literally everything you do, every decision you make revolves around how to better perform. Everything you put in your mouth, what time you go to sleep, what time you wake up, you know, everything needs to be around energy optimization, like what in every aspect because the competition is so thick, if you're not optimizing every aspect of it, you can't even begin to be at the top of your sport. So uh, I, I would assume that being raised under challenging circumstances uh, must have played a defining role in, in driving life after tennis, right? 100%. Yeah, that's, and that's a really good question. That's um, eventually what led me to one of my whys for pursuing financial independence. Um, one of the things that I learned at a very early age, far too early, is that economic independence can make all the difference in the world. Um, my mother was a high school dropout. She wasn't able to really, um, Kind of economically provide for herself or her children, my brother and I. So that was the means in which that my father, that was a lever that my father used the most and he knew it. 
So once I left the sport, there, there was a time, obviously, when I was in the sport and I didn't have any money as I was kind of, as I was alluding to earlier. But once I left, I was like, all right, now it's time to make something of myself. At the time, um, through tennis, I rationalized it. It was it was my dream. That's what I'd worked for since I was four years old, you know, like chasing tennis balls until it's dark and I'm cramping and I'm about to throw up. But after a certain time, you know, it's it's time to stand on your own two feet and per- I would never mistakenly fall into another situation like that where I was dependent on someone else. And in the long run, that's also what led me to real estate. So after I finished my tennis career, I was like, okay, like what does success look like? Success looks like having a stable income. Success looks like having a job. You know, it was so very different from the life that I knew, the life of the corporations and the boardrooms and um, winning through your thoughts and your intellect, that seemed very different than kind of like the more brawny lifestyle I know. So I went to college, I was a sixth grade dropout. So I had to go back to um, my community college, take remedial high school classes, eventually found my way into a private institution up in Boston for my undergrad. Um, got into, got an awesome job at a fortune 500 company. Um, and I was in like their leadership development program, which meant an accelerated management training program. Um, and I thought things were going really well at first that had that stable income, life was good, but then I had this, um, this knowledge brought to me where I realized I was told that I was being paid the least of my entire cohort, despite doing things at a very high visibility that no one else was doing. And my rotation manager at the time had said, we know you're good at things, but we don't know what you're good at. And here I was like in my late twenties, I was an Olympic athlete. I had supported myself traveling the world for years on end, no help, like done so successfully, even if not fully monetarily by the time I retired. And I realized I was relying on this one person's opinion of me to basically control my life. So many of our, our choices that we make are based on the economic, our economic resources. That is one of the largest constraints we have, economics and time, right? And so, so much of my life by being dependent on this one resource was being decided by them. And I realized I was not okay with that, you know? So um, that's when I started looking into other options to optimize my financial standing so that someone else's opinion, any single person could not drive the economic choices I could make the options that I had. So you transition into what certainly must have felt like um, a successful career, right? You're, you're paying your bills, you're, you're able to uh, achieve what at that time probably very much felt like financial freedom. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, it becomes the old, you know, trading time for money. Uh, and and you had a, a a finite ceiling that you didn't have control over, that you um, you you pretty quickly uh, recognize and push through. So I'm I'm really interested, considering the tennis background, um, the the fierce competitive nature, which is perfectly suited for real estate and what you're doing now. Um, but was there any real estate influence at all? Like we go from tennis to corporate America, real estate just yeah. kind of. No, there wasn't. One of my favorite professors in undergrad um, said that, and this is pre-real estate, said that my resume was the most random thing he'd ever seen. <laughs> and I was like, it's not random. Like there's a selection of options that I'm using. And sometimes it doesn't always look like what we think it'll look like, but when you find yourself in a situation, you have to keep an open mind and survey what all the options are in front of you. And sometimes the best one is not what you had envisioned and what you'd set your path for prior. So no, there wasn't a real estate background. Um, my uh, father was a business owner, but certainly didn't own apartment buildings any or even homes that you rent out, nothing like that. I came across real estate be- through um, just doing research and I found the Bigger Pockets podcast. And I realized what was possible at the time I was living in Boston, rent was 
exorbitantly expensive. Like um, it was going to be taking up if I want to live in a decent place that was in a good area, it was going to be taking up most of my paycheck, you know, so I didn't live in very nice areas. And I was just hoping that I could find a way to breathe easier and still have a decent home and not be strapped after paying for rent or my mortgage. Um, and yeah, after I found bigger pockets, my initial thought was, oh, okay, let me get a duplex here in Boston and someone else can help me pay for my mortgage. And then I, maybe I'm, I'll actually be able to make some financial strides. That being said, I started looking at prices of houses in Boston and realized I'd be saving until I was 72, probably to buy a, buy a single home. Exaggeration. But um, it was through that realization that um, I started to look into other options. And that was when I found long distance investing. And um, even though I couldn't live in the house, it wasn't going to offset my housing expenses. I could make more money, have that come in and then grow my financial position in a different way. And honestly, to a much larger extent than just having someone help me with my mortgage. So uh, bigger pockets seems to be one of those reoccurring uh, reference points that, you know, guest after guest uh, at one point or another uh, was impacted uh, by, by the show. Um, what other resources, and, and then we will jump into the fun stuff. Um, wh what other resources can you point to any, any books or, or anything in particular that helped you make this transition into really what was a completely unfamiliar world for you at that point? Yeah, honestly, Bigger Pockets was the biggest one. I mean, I read uh, Rich Dad Poor Dad, also like everybody else, I'd read some Tony Robbins. Um, so I'd slowly become aware of the power of real estate, but it was through Bigger Pockets that I built the network. That's where I got the books. That's where I listened to the podcast, got all the information. So honestly, Bigger Pockets was the biggest source for anything and everything I learned. Yeah. So. <sighs> There, there are common threads that I have found in those of us that have pursued uh, this industry and are now either transitioning or have transitioned successfully to the equity side, um, a fierce competitive nature, um, lifelong learner. Uh, these are all common themes for us. Um, and as we, as we transition, uh, I, I can't advocate enough for, for the audience to continue to explore, continue to read, continue to uh, to learn, to seek out information. Uh, you, you referenced Rich Dad, Poor Dad. We have a, a book club here, and that was one of the books we, we read maybe five or six months ago. Um, just so profound. Uh, it, 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 it's such a, a peculiar book. It, it's, it's concepts are wildly simplistic, yet they are so profound. And until you take the time to really analyze where you are and what trading time for money means and what financial literacy really means, um, that's when you can start your journey, if you will. Um, you know, it, it's, it befuddles me that financial literacy is not a absolute requirement in curriculum in this country, how we are not teaching any of these things to, to the kids. It's just completely absent from any curriculum I've seen anywhere. Yeah, I agree 100%. Um, not going to school after seventh grade didn't really stop my success other than like checking off tick boxes, checking off boxes and opening doors in terms of like what is a normal education, going to a normal college, like not knowing not being very good at algebra, not knowing any geometry hasn't exactly stopped me. You know, what I see stopping people is not understanding how debt works or how to use it to their advantage, not understanding how money works, not understanding what the, those with wealth understand about how to use it. That's what impacts people's lives more than earth science. Uh, well, okay. no, I will not use earth science as <laughs> <laughs> as an example, let's let maybe we can edit that out. I don't know, but you know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> point, point well taken. They're, they're, um, the curriculum is jam packed with things that we're we're just not going to use 
in in life for for most of us and the discipline and all the things they tell us aside there absolutely is room for financial literacy i, I think that it can have a profound impact on so many people's lives um we're working with a, a, a local high school and we started a book club there and we're giving a, a ten thousand dollar grant out uh, at the end of the program to give one of these kids an opportunity to go find a deal and buy, buy property. And we're That's hoping amazing. that it catches, uh, it catches on and, you know, who knows, we'll, we'll see where it goes from there, but okay. So Sonny, you're now at that point, you've recognized, okay, this was a good gig, but no one's putting any more ceilings on what, what I can do. You certainly understand your value, your talent, um, your, picking up bits of information as you go along from podcasts and books, as we all do. Uh, let's talk about, and this is such a, a relevant part uh, of the show and, and why I was so excited to have you on, because a lot of people are where you were at this moment we're describing right now. Uh, they are in living in cities that are wildly priced. Um, they're finding inflation is, is far outpacing their earning uh, potential and they're looking for that, that freedom. Um, you know, most experts say it takes 60 to 65 days to break a habit, and it takes another 60 to 65 days to replace that with another habit. And we've broken our habits. We've broken our patterns of getting up and going to work every day with coronavirus. So many things have changed that uh, the world is really at a pivotal place. So um, I was excited to have you today uh, again, because a lot of folks are right at that moment that you were at that we're going to talk through now. So you're picking up this information, which is available to everyone that listens to the show. Uh, what happens next? How do you source your first deal? What does that look like? Well, I think first you have to get over the oh sh moment. I don't know if you <laughs> but like I'll try to hold my tongue. But yeah, I think the first thing is getting over your own fear and figuring out what you need. Um, there's a quote, Stephen Covey, begin with the end in mind. I think the first thing, honestly, is to take personal inventory and figure out what do you want your life to look like and then reverse engineer how to get there. So um, for me, I was working my butt off in corporate America. I was working in corporate finance. Corporate finance on the coast is not um, an easy career path. It's highly demanding nights, weekends, you name it. Um, before like earnings releases, et cetera, your life is your job, right? And so I didn't want yet another path of that. My life had been my job for decades from the time I was, before I was 14 years old, you know? So I was angling for an easier path in the long term, even if that meant more work in the short term. So for me, what that meant was spending more time educating myself. And part of that was because I didn't have money to invest for a couple of years. I was making my way through grad school while still working full time. But yeah, just taking the time to learn so that I knew everything I could. And then that would also allow me to minimize the risk or attempt to minimize the risk that I'd be taking by putting my money in these investment choices, right? So like learning where the ups and downs could be and what do I need to know to ask the right questions to try to make sure XYZ doesn't happen, you know, because I'm like not going to lie to you. There's and any investor will tell you that there's, there's always things that happen where you spend way more than you realize and you have to do it. Otherwise you don't have an investment. Right. So a roof goes out, a contractor runs out on you and you have to pay again twice to fix whatever was broken or whatever you were doing. Like you literally don't have a choice. So really making sure I educated myself was number one. Number two was building my network and making sure I had an idea, at least, of what I was talking about and could back that up before I started reaching out to people. So I wouldn't waste their time. And I could try to figure out how to add value to them because our main currency is what we can do for others. So if we can help others, then there is a greater chance that you will, and you can do so in like an authentically genuine, good manner. The ability, like people will be more inclined to help you in return, right? And so then that also helps me reduce my 
risk of failing because you have different people, you have a group mind, you can reach out to different contacts, et cetera, et cetera. So the first two steps, really educating and building that network. It's, it would, both of those were the safety nets under, under me as I went out into this brand new arena by myself. So, uh, education network. Okay. You're, you're, starting to now uh, dip your toe and 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 I would assume before long you've jumped in the pool and and now uh, one thing about this industry uh, and podcasting I found it is an unbelievably wonderful community of people that are looking to help they're the people I have met on this journey uh, have been so amazing and I, I know I certainly have reached out and helped a number of folks they've in turn, reached out and, and helped me a number of times. There are a lot of people out there that want to, there's a very communal feel uh, to real estate. There are the sharks, of course, and, and we're all sharks in our, in our own right, uh, but there is definitely a, a communal feel to it. So you're establishing the network. You, you think you've got a good base. What does the first deal look like? So for me, um, the first deal was different from what I was seeing. Um, I, when I was starting, a lot of people were chasing like the C-class assets. So looking for what they thought would be the projected, higher projected returns. At the time, those were duplexes for $70,000 that could get you 650 rent each side. You're close to 2% um, working class or slightly lower economically than working class. And um, that wasn't what I wanted. So my first deal was actually in one of the more affluent communities. Um, I invested in Indianapolis and um, it was a duplex that a lot of people were kind of overlooking because it was in the outskirts of the city. It wasn't, it didn't have an Indianapolis address, but the school systems were some of the best in the area, if not arguably the best, low crime. And I figured those are the statistics that would lead me to a better investment in the long term. At the time, I wasn't looking to constantly be trading, um, selling one, buying another, selling what I had. I want to get something that would be a good long-term asset, would be like easier to hold. I would just keep like updating it, polishing it, improving the revenue stream, but I wouldn't just be like, hey, I'll give you this, you give me that. You know, just like I wanted an easier life. So um that investment theory actually has worked out really well for me because as I've seen other um, friends and other investors kind of get tired of the, and especially during COVID, um, when people who are maybe don't think or, un, or are unable to plan for the future economically in the same way, they struggle a little bit more when it comes to paying their rents, et cetera. You know, whereas when you are in a more, in, in, a, in a place where people are planning for the long-term because they want their kids to be in like the top school districts. They want um, their kids to be in good neighborhoods. They, they're not thinking, they're thinking more into the future that I have seen extends to also their living situation. They're able to pay rent. They communicate when, if something goes wrong, you know, and they're able to like plan for that. And that helps you as the landlord also plan for that and be able to make your payments and it's less stress. It's that investment theory has worked out really well for me. I actually, once I, I ended up moving to Indianapolis two years ago and um, I started to foray into some of the lower class assets to give it a try. I'm going back. I sold it <laughs> a year later. I was already done and I'm going back into what initially worked for me. So when you made this acquisition in, or just outside of Indianapolis, where were you living? Boston. Boston. So uh, when vetting a market, right? Not just on this transaction, because I'm sure uh, from what I understand, you're, you're eight or nine transactions in at this point, your model is evolving, right? You're, uh, you're learning, you're adapting. Um, what are some of the metrics that you look at when contemplating investing in a market that you're not able to, you know, reach out, touch and feel, if you will, on a regular basis. For sure. So I think at the end of the day, what it comes down to is, are there going to be quality tenants that are going to be able to pay for housing? 
are they going to be able to afford quality housing? What, how can they afford it through their jobs? So what, does, what do the jobs look like in that area? Like, are there a lot of different companies or is there just one? Are there a lot of different sectors or is there just one? Is it just the car industry? Is there just one large employer? What happens if something happens to the car industry? I don't think I need to go farther than that example, right? Or like if one employer shuts down, how are people going to afford it, right? So if you can have several different sectors, several different large employers um, in that area, giving people jobs, allowing them to have a way to pay for housing, that's one then what does the future look like, right? So real estate is not a get rich quit strategy. You have to hold it for years and keep working and keep like towing the line and doing what you need to do. Um, so does that mean and when you look at job productions, are they supposed to increase or decrease in that area? Are more people moving there or are people leaving? Because you want more people there. That's a larger supply for a tenant pool. It all comes down to supply and demand, right? So job growth, um, that also means unemployment. Unemployment figures are sometimes easier to find. How are, what are unemployment figures like? Are they better than what you can find in the rest of the country or are they worse? Because let's, let's pick a number out of the hat, 6%, 6%. Maybe that sounds low to you, but what is the national average? If everywhere else, 3% is what unemployment is, that means there are less people in your area who are able to pay for housing. I don't think you'd want that, right? You'd want a place that has lower unemployment figures. So it's kind of things like that. Like what do you, what fits in, which other factors fit in with people being able to afford housing? Those are the factors that you need to be looking at. So, uh, and something that not nearly enough investors do take the time to look at is uh, these metrics on more of a macro level, right? So people, mm -hmm. uh, I reference it as buying payments. I'm seeing people time and time again, uh, they're they're falling in love with today's interest rate. They're not locking them in long term, and they're buying a payment. They're not diligencing these things that that Sonny's referencing. And folks, it's not if uh, the big company shutters its doors. It's not if there's a, a dynamic change in uh, who who may be or what may be the the major driver of employment in that particular area. These things do happen, will happen. They are going to continue to happen. Uh, these are, are metrics you must be looking at when investing outside of uh, home base, if you will. There are so many factors uh, that you can study to, to make sure that you're, you're on firm ground, not just in today's world. Uh, you know, what, what we're living in today for real estate is an anomaly. Uh, this is not going to last. It never does. It's a cycle, folks. So, um, so important that you do the proper diligence. Is there a, uh, a, a ratio that that you or or is it more um, location specific? Is it thirty percent of uh, you know the the average income uh, attributed to rent? Is there any one formula that you look at in particular, or is it really site specific? It's very site site specific uh, for me. I look at when I look at an area, I try to see where people are living, what kind of what kind of jobs they have, what they're doing, and that sort of thing. Before instead of just looking at it like in terms of um, income to rent, because income to rent can be a large swath. Um, whereas when you're investing, it's hyper, hyper local in some areas, you can change block to block, right? So that's more of what I would look at. And, and how are you managing um, the management of these assets absent scale, right? It, it's a lot easier if you have five buildings and they're 200 units a piece and you can afford uh, one and a half full-time supers and, and a management company. How do you, how do you manage that? For a couple of years, I did use a management company. Um, they would take a percentage of gross rents and just take care of everything. Um, after a while, I realized that was less uh, beneficial to me because after a certain amount of time and this was also a benefit of investing long distance. You know, I could afford more units. The flip side is more units can mean more problems in terms of repairs. But having to cycle through those repairs, I also cycled through contractors and found like a good team that I built up. And so that took away a lot of 
my headaches in terms of, and my why behind um, hiring the property managers. They have the resources, but now I did too, you know? So after a while I took over the property management of my own places and um, eventually it'll be nice to hire that back out again. But right now, especially since I invest in mostly like, I think higher economic class areas, it, it works out for me. It's not, it's not as hard as it would be as if my portfolio was in a lower economic class where people couldn't afford like um, the rents, et cetera. Like, I feel like I talk to everyone I talk to is similar to me. I can have those conversations. So how many units uh, or how many deals have you successfully closed at this point? I think it's 11 deals. So that includes like all my purchases, one sale, and then um, a mobile home park I signed the contract to last year. Well, congrats. So 11 deals and how many units does that translate to? Nine. And <laughs> yeah. your, uh, are they all in and or around the Indianapolis area? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, as you're acquiring the, these, these deals, uh, so many questions, um, where are you finding the deals first and foremost? Um, a variety of places. Some are off market. Some are the MLS. My last um, acquisition was off the MLS. Um, it's just about recognizing it early and being able to put in an, a strong and competitive offer um, in this market. So that can mean cash. That can be a quick close. Um, yeah, you just have to you just have to be willing to be aggressive with it. Okay, so as you're sourcing these deals, um, is there a, 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 well, of course there are, which metrics are most important to you? Is it uh, your cash on cash return or is it a cap rate analysis? What, what are, are the goals when Sunny looks at the deal? What is she looking for? So the first, the first decision point in my funnel is price to rent ratio. So I won't look at anything that's like less than maybe like 1.3% um, price to rent. And then everything I need these days has to be burrable um, because I can only, I'm growing this on a single discretionary income. So that doesn't really happen quickly. I, I don't have a hundred K cash sitting around ever. <laughs> you know, I don't have the kind of cash to be able to do this. So I take on debt partners and then, um, I need to be able to exit them by refinancing. So this, I need to be able to refi and pull out a significant amount of cash. So I need to make sure that even at the time of purchase, I am purchasing it under market. And then the um, after repair value is much higher than what the total purchase price and repair costs were. So, so those you, are like my two of my big things. And then obviously low crime. I stay, I don't need to be in like the highest school districts anymore. Also, those are so competitive now that like getting a cash return on that is insanely difficult. Um, so I'm okay in a lower class area, but it has to be gentrifying. Like it has to be improving rapidly. So I'll buy something if there's like flips all around, but that neighborhood, that block is still a little difficult because I know in two years or something, it'll be a very different story. So uh, just to, so the audience is following, can you explain in, in your own words, what is price to rent ratio? What does that mean? Right. Sorry about that. That and Burr, um, I should have, I should have defined those right when I said them. So price to rent is looking at your monthly rent versus the purchase price. So a lot of people talk about the 1% rule. So that means if you buy a house and you're all in for a hundred thousand, you want it to rent for a thousand dollars a month. Um, so I, if I'm all in for a hundred thousand, I want it to rent for at least 1300 a month. And then, um, if I'm all in for a hundred, like when you say bird, that means buy. that's an acronym. It stands for buy, rehab, rent, refi, and repeat. So buying cash, rehab it so that you force the appreciation on it. And it is now worth more than the cash put into it. You rent it out. And then you go to the bank and say, hey, like, can I get a loan on this? Because there's no loan on it right now. And if you run your numbers correctly, you can take a loan out 
for, let's say you put a hundred, I'm not going to do math. Please don't make me do math in my head. Um, I need Excel. That was, that's my years of corporate financial. I can't actually do anything in my head. Um, so um, if you spend a hundred K all in and let's say um, the bank will let you take out a hundred K, give you a loan for a hundred K. If it's actually appraises for 150, you want to make sure it appraises for 150. And then you can get back all the money you put in and then have a cash flowing rental with your cash not in it at all, which is the ideal scenario for some. Um, there's all kinds of arguments, like sometimes that will cause people to take on too much debt, you know? Um, so that's something to be aware of, but yeah, as long as you know what numbers work for you in your overall portfolio, like that's something that I look for to be so that I can keep growing. Because if I, if I leave my money in an asset, I'm not going to be able to buy another one for a long time, which well, is why four years later, I'm at like nine doors. I'm growing very slowly, but compared to many, but that's okay with me. Yeah. So uh, the, 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 if you're methodical in your approach, folks, uh, what Sunny is describing is there's no guesswork. I can assure you she's clearly uh, measured and, and prepared. So when you're acquiring an asset, you want to make sure that there is the upside required from if the strike price is 100,000 and you know you're going to put 30 or 40,000 in, you need to make sure that there are comps at 200,000, for example, for a, a, a refurbished, stabilized asset at the end of the day. Simple to go out and verify. Uh, and I'm sure Sonny is also taking a look at the local lending institutions. If they're doing refi cash outs, what do the rates look like? Are they doing 70% leverage, 80% leverage, 90% leverage? What does that refi cash out look like against the initial acquisition debt carrying costs and all the other factors that get rolled up into this? And at the end of the day, when you have pulled that additional cash out and you're stabilized, what is the, uh, the, the delta between your principal interest taxes and insurance and the number that they're actually paying you in rent. So you're actually able to take that money back, pay your investors back on the acquisition and on the, the construction. Many times you're able to put a nice chunk of change in your pocket. You own the asset and you get to keep the spread between say a $700 a month payment and a $1,200 a month rental. Am I, am I on the right track here? Perfect. All right. Perfect. So as you're, you're going through this uh, process, are you finding that it's becoming uh, more challenging as you get up to five, six, eight, 10 doors? Um, uh, we have heard before, and, and I experienced this at one point in my career, uh, even if you've got great credit and you've got a great balance sheet, there does come a point where the banks start to say, we are not comfortable lending anymore. Have debt you, to income ratio, yes. There it is. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Um, so also not going into the math behind this, there is a formula that I cannot repeat to you um, on command. So your bank looks at how much money you're bringing in and how much money you have, um, you're holding in terms of debt. And so that doesn't necessarily mean you're not making money, but a lot of times they'll like, I think they look at your tax returns, right? And so with depreciation and write-offs, sometimes, I mean, you look like you could be living in poverty. Like there isn't, yeah. there, it looks like you're not making any money, even though you're getting the income from the rents, et cetera. So um, that's, that's when it can get harder to find someone who will lend to you. Um, and I, that's why like this business is all about the relationships you make, the friends that you have in the different areas and genuine friends who will help make things happen for you. You know, like a good lender who knows that you are good for it. Um, you're successful. You're not going to make risky financial decisions and they'll find a way to help underwrite that loan. So yeah, it definitely does get more difficult, but there's also like ways around it, right? Like you can pay some loans off, you can do other things to increase your income, et cetera. Like, so CP, a good CPA also comes in very handy when it comes to these things. Yeah, with, without a doubt. Um, what, are, are you seeing any changes in the market uh, now? Are you seeing uh, any signs of the banks tightening up restrictions or is it business as usual still? What are you seeing out there? 
Well, I think things have changed a couple times, you know, with COVID, et cetera. Like there was, a, there was I think last year at one point, um, Fannie Freddie like lowered the amount of investor loans that they would provide, which really was kind of like a punch to the mouth because like that just hits your mom and pop landlords. That hits the ordinary people like me trying to just get a leg up in life because you know the Wall Street institutions are not using Fannie Freddie to fund their deal. So it's just like how on earth. <laughs> but anyway, back to the point. Um, that has since been um, lifted. And uh, like, so my last corporate job, I no longer work in corporate finance. I work for um, a personal finance podcast now, but my last job was in corporate, uh, was in mortgage data. So like the next three years, mortgage rates are supposed to increase slightly almost every quarter, you know? So I think that's going to make things definitely very interesting in terms of investing, making sure we get the returns. And for those who flip, like there's just this dichotomy between low supply because building stopped for so, so long. And now building costs are so high yeah. um, and money, even though it's getting more expensive, is still historically pretty cheap, you know? So like trying to make sure, like if you're buying and holding, making sure like the fixed rate, you're using that to work in your favor because it's not in your favor long-term to get an adjustable rate, unless you're going to pay it off, you know, just knowing like there are a lot of things in play and I don't think anyone really knows exactly what's coming, but I think there's enough that it's going to stay competitive for a little while. Yeah. So um, certainly no one has a crystal ball, but we have not been bashful about uh, making predictions over the years here. And, and we, we recently started ringing the alarm bell uh, maybe about six months ago. Uh, we, we feel when we, we everyone's been talking about interest rates, raising for 10 years, but but we haven't seen that or felt it, but we do think that we're there now. Uh, and we do think that, uh, I think you're spot on about over the next couple of years, uh, seeing three to four increases in rates over, over the next few years. And some of the deals that we've seen that folks are underwriting and, and uh, acting on, they're not as crazy as this sounds, they're, they're opting to take an extra quarter of a point or three eighths of a point discount in today's rate in, in exchange for only being fixed for two or three years, which to us feels like suicide. I mean, th th there's, you know, especially in like the multifamily sector now, because that's gotten so competitive. If you are underwriting five caps or four caps, and uh, so like a four cap for your audience would be uh, the return on the investment without leverage taken into account. So if your return is, to make this very simple, if your return on a seven unit is 4%, but you have a mortgage rate that's gonna increase in two years to above five or six, if you're, if you're, if you're paying 6%, but only making 4%, that yep. seems crazy. Like, yeah. Yeah, the, the, you know, the, I've never seen a pro forma, right? That didn't work. And that's part of the trick is, is, yeah. is making sure that you're able to navigate those waters. So uh, the Griffix Property Group, let's just spend a minute or two on uh, services that you're offering. Yeah, so still ordinary person, just trying to build her, just trying to build her portfolio, her little empire to have an easier life. Um, I think the biggest thing that I'm really passionate about is helping people invest you know, making sure that there are other people who can help influence their financial future through investing. So I do some consulting um, and work with, especially like new investors or investors looking to learn about long distance investing. I do um, some of that. Um, but other than that, that's basically the extent of my services. Um, I also talked a little bit, I also talked to people a little bit about short-term rentals because I also dabble there and I'm growing my short-term rental portfolio. So um, that's that's pretty much it um, in terms of what I offer. It's with a full-time job and a rental portfolio. I, I'm not exactly one of the gurus that you'll see, but that doesn't mean I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> no, so certainly. And there's, there's a lot to be gleaned from real world practical uh, knowledge and, and, and being able to learn from what what you're implementing now. Sonny, what, uh, give us a, just a, a minute or two before I let you go 
on uh, where does the the journey for you end? What does financial independence, financial freedom look like? Uh, Do you have your sites set on a thousand unit portfolio or do you have your your, your sites set on? Absolutely not. Yeah, so extremely ambitious person here, obviously like caveat that, that being said, um, again, my goal is to live a better life. And that to me, that doesn't look like working all the time. So at one point in time, I would have loved to grow faster. Now I'm actually selling off any units that aren't like prime, like performing optimally, and then using that to convert my current units into and pulling them into optimal positions. And only then will I start to grow. So I'm, if I can have six or seven paid off houses, bringing in my income figure, like my net income goal, I am good with that. Like there's no need for me personally to be owning a ton of apartment buildings and stuff. I just want enough to have a good life and do what I love to do, which is some real estate, but then travel, go on vacation, you know, do the fun things. No, without question. And and we, we lose sight of that, even in the pursuit of financial freedom. uh, So many folks we've seen over the years, uh, lose sight of what that really means. And, and you had said something in the beginning, uh, look at the end, right, before you begin. And I think that that's so important and something that is really, really easy uh, to lose, lose focus of. Um, a lot of people are lured into real estate now under the, the auspice of passive investing. And, and it's and not it, passive. That's it's the not. First thing. Like, I want to <laughs> scream that from the rooftops. Like, Thank you. it's not passive. There's a difference between passive and residual. It is residual. It is great as a residual investment. You have people pay down your debt. Where else can you buy a stock and have someone else pay at, at 10% of the stock price and then have someone else pay down the stock and give you spending money? Like, you can't. Right. So it's residual. It's awesome, but it's not easy and it's not passive. Without a doubt. Uh, everyone, um, th- this is a, a great show. I really uh, appreciated the chat. Sonny, what's the best way for folks to find you? Um, probably through my website, griffixpropertygroup.com, G-R-I-F-F-I-X property group. Also, probably through my Instagram, which is S-U-N-I underscore R-A-O underscore. So that's Sunny underscore Rao underscore. Perfect. Sunitha Rao, everyone, uh, as always, please stay safe. And Sunny, thanks so much for the time. Thanks for having me. Be well. Mm-hmm.